0: In Louisville, Kentucky, on a hot August Friday back in 2014, The Purge began. You remember the movie The Purge, right? It was a fictional thriller that came out one year before the Louisville event. A thriller which asked the question, what if all crime was legal for one night every year like a holiday? Literally, all crime. Murder, theft, property damage. The movie starred Ethan Hawke and Lena Headey, hiding in their mansion as gangs stalked their neighborhood. Well, in 2014, Louisville had their purge, and it was advertised on Twitter as a violent city free-for-all that would last 10 hours and 30 minutes. The original tweet was posted by an unnamed user with the message, Who's trying to get the Louisville purge started with me? Funny joke, right? But later. Other posters joined in, like Jeremy Doitry, who tweeted promotional posters of the film, with Louisville photoshopped into the title. The tweets claimed these Purge posters had been found all over the city. That same day, a Redditor user with the name of mbrit74 created a Louisville Purge mega thread and attached it to an official Louisville subreddit where people started messaging each other about the upcoming violence. Later that night, a popular online magazine, Thought Catalog, published a live blog, which included reports about increased violence, explosions, and gunshots throughout the city. The next day, the Louisville Purge got picked up by Gawker, who called the Thought Catalog article a fictional account. During the following week, the Purge hoax was reported by the New York Daily News, the BBC Time, People, E Online, and Up Rocks, as well as local stations and radio. The Louisville Purge may have been fabricated. It may have been a hoax. But the reactions, the money lost by the Louisville businesses, was very real. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert.
1: And I'm the writer, researcher, and purger, Joe Anthony, whose (laughs) job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet and get us to the juicy facts.
0: In the AMC's show... Mad men. Don Draper has this to say about how commercials dictate our perception of love. The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. You're born alone, you die alone, and this world drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts. Don Draper is a cynic, no doubt, but there's no denying that marketing, Disney, and Hallmark have influenced our expectations of romantic love. And if you don't believe me, watch the Facebook feed of all your single friends when Valentine's Day rolls around. Today, our topic is all about how Hollywood and marketing have colored our perceptions. To do this, we're busting three big blockbuster myths. Myth 1. As irrational adults, we can all separate TV from reality. There's no way commercials or movies are coloring our perceptions, right? Myth two. Well, at least we have an idea of how successful we should be. We live in the real world, so we must have a firm grip on how much things cost and what our family structure should look like. And myth three. Well, at least we know what we want in a partner. There's no way our most fundamental need for human contact has been skewed by Hollywood, Right? But first, Joe and I are going to reveal when we first started noticing our own perceptions being skewed and how it dealt a blow to our ego. Well, I want to talk to you about why we did this episode to begin with. Um, TV, Joe, was my first true love. Yeah. (laughs) Like any good American. Um, When I was a kid, it was perceived that TV was bad for you. You know, that it rotted your brain. I was about to say those exact words. <laughs> so you heard that in your, in your childhood too? Yes, absolutely. Um, now, a lot of my friends now, some of my uppity friends will say things like, I don't watch TV. And my even more uppity friends will say, I don't own a TV.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I'm quick to remind them that staring at a screen of YouTube videos all day is the same thing.
1: Yeah, not owning a TV is high and mighty until you see them surfing Facebook all day or playing Farm Bill all day. Then that goes right out the window. So they fit, figure out a
0: way to fill that content time.
1: Right, yeah, there's always something. Um, for me,
0: TV was very powerful. Um, it taught me how to interact with my friends. It taught me what the perfect family structure with, this loving dad, um, apparently no bill problems. I've never seen a TV... Um, sitcom with any bill problems,
1: yeah they don't they don't show like the overdue bill or envelope in the mail like that doesn't happen often on sitcoms. What were you telling me about Friends about them living in New York City and having these? You know? Oh, uh, we're gonna that's a teaser. We're we're gonna get to that when we okay. get down to our 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 finances section, but. Yeah, um, just a spoiler, uh, the, the lifestyle of a lot of people on TV, the way they live, unrealistic.
0: Um, why we picked today's uh, topic was, is these people on TV with all these morals and these values, is that the way they are in real life? And do they make us better people? Do, does it make us better? Or does it make us worse? Um, does it change us? Does it become, does it raise us? Or are we just mindlessly zoning out for three or four hours every day? I want to start you off with this teaser. The average American watches four hours a day. So what that is is that's if you live to sixty-five, that's nine full years of watching TV. So if you have put that much attention on something, it has to have some influence on you.
1: Right, nine years. That's that's what can you master in nine years? Or if you're not thinking about um, mastering after nine years, after nine years of television, does that put a voice in your head? Like, do you, do you sometimes, uh, you, Todd, do you ever find yourself narrating your own life?
0: <laughs> I do all the time. And what I do is if I think of something funny with one of my friends or... Um, I will rehearse it, and then when I see them, I run like a skit. <laughs> and I've been doing it for years. And I'll practice it. I'll get it down. And it's to get that. It's like a little show I'll do for them. Right. If my friends knew how much time I work on material for them, they'd be flattered.
1: <laughs> how, how much you're you're planning out bits for yeah, yeah. for their
0: entertainment things that I things that I've observed from them, and then I put it into a little skit about trying to make it funny, I guess.
1: Right. Well, there's, there's a little bit of expectation to that. There's, there's, uh, you can't really have that skill without first having a narrator in your head that isn't you. I mean, that is in the voice of television. Now, I ask about narration specifically um, because one of our delusions uh, that I looked up is something called the Truman Show delusion. Uh, have you ever seen the, uh, the movie The Truman Show? I haven't seen that, no. It, it's a fun sort of comedy drama starring Jim Carrey, and he lives a, a suburbanite life where he goes around thinking that he's got like this ideal leave it to Beaver thing going on, and he doesn't realize he's on a television show. So it's a reality show, but he doesn't know that. Yeah, it was it was almost like a proto reality show. Like like he's he's living a normal life. Everyone in his life, his immediate town is part of the show. They're all actors except for him. And so they, they put him through his paces. They, they basically make a drama around him. They humor him. They humor him, yes. And he doesn't realize that he is in the the top show in the world. So he's basically a prisoner in this life. And as he s- discovers or, or starts to suspect that he's being surrounded by cameras and narrators and, and you know set designers, um, it, it becomes about his escape, now, um, naturally, if we watch too much television, we do get sort of an inner voice for this. We, we, we get a narrator. Um, some, something I've experienced uh, in writing is if you listen to an audiobook or read long enough, more than 40 minutes is what I've heard, uh, you can emulate the narration style or the vocal cadence.
0: The, the pace, the rhythm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. So whatever you're listening to or whatever you're reading, you can sort of emulate that. Um, that, that's a, that's a sidebar to this. Um, but some people after the Truman Show came out, they started developing real psychological delusions about this. Uh, it's called the Truman Show Delusion. And it was, uh, uh, presented by, um, uh, Joel Gold and Ian Gold. And I'm going to read off a couple of these cases just because they're fascinating. Uh, this is, um... This is the most extreme version of Hollywood changing our expectations that I could find the purge the the Louisville purge is a good one Uh, This is this is a a runner-up to that So they found one case of the Truman Show delusion um, Where somebody claimed the 9-11 attacks were fabricated and the cameras had been planted in his eyes to capture his reactions to the 9-11 attacks so he, he thought that these were happening to get a rise out of him. Like the Truman Show, they would, they would throw uh, life upsets and, and strange things at Jim Carrey to get his reactions.
0: For entertainment
1: value. Exactly. This guy thought that they were doing that to him. So much so that he traveled to New York to see if the towers were still standing. Uh, later, he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. So that actually explains why he started going through this delusion. Uh, another man in this case study uh, attempted suicide three times to escape the taping, quote unquote. Uh, he was paranoid or, people following him around. and yeah, it it's most of these cases they they kind of take pretty sad turns or or they they end up having close relations to to schizophrenia, the diagnosis of yeah. extreme paranoia yeah, and we're not we're not sharing any of the names in this because it, it's there's no reason to. Uh, the, 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 the delusion themselves are are hyped enough. Um, another case they worked on, uh, they called this man Mr. D. He actually worked on reality TV shows and and he became convinced that he was being controlled by a film crew. So this is somebody, you would think that working in Hollywood or working in the industry, would make you immune to sort of the magic like, of course, you would know when cameras are following you around. But this guy worked in reality TV and he became convinced of the Truman Show delusion. So anybody is susceptible to it. Um, The Truman Show delusion, I mean, Uh, but but it seems to be that it's accompanied with uh, schizophrenia. Um, So that's our most extreme example. You and I, Todd, wait, wait, I'll ask first. Are you being recorded at all times? (laughs) I do think the world revolves around me, but I'm not sure that's the same thing. Okay. (laughs) Same thing here. So we're on good footing. I'm Um, a leading actor of my own uh, movie. (laughs) Right. So we're both potentially narcissists. (laughs) However, we probably don't have cameras following us. So the first question I want to address as as normal human beings who are the star of our own show, uh, how many times do you have to hear a commercial or, or how many times do you have to hear a narration on television before it sticks, before it, it makes you susceptible?
0: I was just thinking about this today because I'm thinking, why do Coke and Pepsi still have to advertise? <laughs> <laughs> and pay for uh, room on shelves in stores.
1: Right, they're the only game in town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how could they, they should be
0: above that, but... I don't. I'm
1: not sure. You tell me how many times. If they miss one commercial, <laughs> RC Cola will sweep in.
0: <laughs> yeah, they don't even...
1: yeah. I, I I get you on that. Um, so we're going back to old school advertising. This is this is when you know the the golden age of television. Uh, they came up with something called the rule of seven, and the idea is uh, if you run something past a viewer's eyes seven times, uh, or more generally, uh, um, you will catch their attention enough to where it becomes actionable to where somebody will actually think when they see, like if I show you a, an Arby's commercial seven times, then you might actually consider stopping if you're passing by an Arby's. Um, this has been refined over the years, uh, in, um, Uh, I was looking at psychology today, and LinkedIn had a really good article about this. uh, And it's called the mere exposure effect. And it means that uh, when a listener or viewer develops a preference for what you're showing them, it's with repetition. And the repetition reaches its peak around 10 exposures, roughly 10 to 20. Um, If you overexpose them, you you ever see a commercial that just you've seen too many times and it starts killing you. Like it bothers you.
0: Absolutely. My foot, there's some of the football commercials with, they were funny
1: about the first six times. Yeah. And now you just, you just, yeah, you want to turn the TV off when you see them. Could you make a list of the annoying ones for you so I can just have them on repeat? (laughs) You're annoying enough yourself. You don't need any. I don't need any assistance. (laughs) Uh, Let the commercials do the heavy lifting for me. (laughs) So the, the mere exposure effect says that um, it's after about, Uh, 20, when you get up to the 20 range and you start heading over that, uh, that's when mere exposure uh, becomes dislike. So 10 to 20 means you're gonna get actionable responses from people if it's available. So like, if I show you a Jell-O commercial 14 times, you may actually pick up a a case of Jell-O on your way through the supermarket. If I get you with that same commercial 22, 24, 26 times, you start getting annoyed, You'll never touch Jello again.
0: So that's why you want to change your commercial. Then
1: you want to change your commercial. Change um, your message. Change your angle. Exactly. Actors, actresses. Right. Right. Get new look. Um, uh, I can't tell you how many uh, Allstate or what is that? Um, flow with the the insurance. That's why they have skits. They're they're made into story narratives. Is because it looks like it's an evolving story, not just one repeated. So it runs thing. that block and then they move on. Exactly. So they're they're aiming to get you into that nice. 10 to 20 mere exposure spot.
0: And I've noticed that on uh, recently some of the insurance ones, they've changed the characters and run the exact same skit. Yeah. But they changed the faces. So it's new, but it's still the same hook.
1: Yeah. I see that with phone commercials that, that they do the same trick. So the, the point we want to make with that is simply that um, we're all susceptible. You don't have to be... Uh, suffering the Truman Show delusion. Um, you, you are already in this... Um, uh, you're already a target of this mere exposure effect just by being a consumer that sees ads. Now I kind of want to do a meditation with you. So...
0: Yoga yeah, no um, meditation, I'm ready. Yeah, I see you doing the pose.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, close your eyes if you want. Um, and I just want you to imagine... Uh, somebody carrying groceries, a a grocery bag. They're returning home. Uh, Maybe imagine just like a housewife or some woman carrying groceries. And Todd, I want to ask you, uh, when you're imagining this, is it a plastic bag or a brown bag? Brown bag. Is there a French baguette and green leaves poking out the top of that bag? (laughs) It's kind of like crumpled and stuff poking out the top, <laughs> yeah. like she's about to drop it. Right, right. Uh, so um, I I make that joke because um, I was in uh, my I went to school for graphic design, and so they they teach you archetypes, and and we may have even talked about this on the podcast before. An archetype is basically a, a, a easy shorthand, like it, it's it's the the uh, expectation brains jump to. When you're talking about stuff. If I say the word librarian, everyone has the same image roughly in their head.
0: The glasses, the hair up in the bun. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, same thing with uh, the, the groceries, carrying groceries home. Usually it's going to be a... You, know, you can see this in movies, by the way. You watch movies, you see somebody coming back from the store. Almost always, it's they're carrying a brown bag. Uh, it's got leafy greens poking out of the top and a French baguette. <laughs> Like like they literally teach uh, people in graphic design to draw archetypes to tap into that. Um, now, real quick, same game, uh, same, same meditation. I know I'm not doing the, the meditational chant correctly. Uh, I want you to imagine France. Did you just think of the Eiffel Tower? Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, now imagine <laughs> Russia. I'm guessing your mind either went to sort of a big, brutalist, concrete building or a frozen tundra. Yeah, I'm a Siberia guy, so. Okay, there no we ladder. go. So uh, this, this archetypes thing, uh, it, it works for both places and it works also for people. So we talked about the, the librarian. You can do this with anything, like uh, the, the jock or, or the you know, the, the preppy person. Uh, they, they have a, a term when you're casting somebody for a role called central casting. So this all pretty much falls under the same umbrella of we have expectations because we've seen enough television. And yeah, those are being designed.
0: They want to look, the, look for the bad guys and the good guys.
1: Yeah. It's, it's A certain
0: voice, a certain attitude, a certain energy.
1: Yeah. They're, they're casting for... Th- people that will evoke uh, an image that will fit an archetype and it it makes it easier for us to sort of understand and that's that's it it's all shorthand um so when you're thinking about maybe i'm not susceptible to the narrative of television or i'm a grown adult this stuff doesn't affect me it already has it's it's we key off of archetypes we hear the narrative in our heads Um, we're just generally good enough at not convoluting that with reality.
0: You've been overexposed. It's way too late for you.
1: Yeah. Oh, me specifically. It's way too late for me, Todd. (laughs) I already think in movies and archetypes. So, uh, for the rest of you, save yourselves. (laughs) The good news is I am not the only person who thinks in these movie terms. Um... In fact, the it sounds like most of the city of Louisville also thinks in movie tropes and, and movie archetypes.
0: They uh, did. And they bought in for that weekend. Um, we we'll are going back to the story that we began with. The Purge. <laughs> the Louisville Purge. Well, many games and parties were skipped because people heard about this. And a lot of local businesses lost money. There was even rumored to be a giraffe on, that was set loose. Oh, was there actually a giraffe? So? There wasn't. Oh, oh darn. <laughs> there were two murders that were blamed on the purge and reported that they were because of the purge. Later, they were found to be unrelated. But high school football games were canceled. Uh, the Kentucky State Fair was going on, and the attendance was very low. So there's a loss to all the vendors and everyone who set up there. Oh, wow. Yeah, bowling alleys were closed. A huge cost to all the emergency services the fire department and the police department. Oh, naturally, people were calling for purge services, right? Now, Joe, you can't put a dollar value on how much stress this caused to all the
1: locals. I, when you first read the narrative, I was thinking that the purge, that this was just sort of like a little kid prank gone wrong, and it just got reported a lot. So this this had real economic ramifications. Absolutely.
0: So that whole weekend, all the imagine all bars, restaurants, movie theaters were either closed or they were
1: h- half a capacity. Wow, that was a prelude or a, a prelude to uh, COVID. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I also noticed in our um, our episode doc, uh, you had something written in here. Basically, from the this, the planning of this episode, uh, you had written something about the Cosby Show versus Married with Children. Oh, I, yeah. I got to ask about that.
0: Okay, when I was a kid. The Cosby Show was the number one sitcom. Everybody watched it every week. Oh, sure. You talk about school the next day. People went to work about it. Now, it's an African-American family with two doctors, perfect gorgeous kids. hmm But there was other show that was a big hit show on this new network called Fox at the time. It was called Married with Children. And it was... A shoe salesman, white trash. They talked about <laughs> sex and drugs and smoking, infidelity. there was um, weight shame. I and mean, it was the most inappropriate show.
1: right. Yeah, that so, show was wild.
0: Yeah. so you fast forward to today, and Bill Cosby, Mr. Perfect, is' in, it was was turns out he was raping women all this whole time. He was doing this show as this high and mighty. You know, he's on TV talking about other comics who swear and this and that, judging. and
1: Right, he turns out to be a, a sex crim in, and, in sweaters, yeah. And all the married with children, there's a, um,
0: there's a whole bunch of actors and actresses on there that are still acting and still irrelevant and still on hit shows today. So I just think that's so funny because there's just so, so polar opposite. You have this oh. white trash poor family with no morals, and then you have this uh, African-American, high-value, high-educated,
1: Right, yeah, and and the the married with children. I mean, uh, um, uh, yeah, Ted is on Modern Family or some other show like that. Uh, uh, Peggy, the the wife, she's been in several shows. I mean, she was in Sons of Anarchy. So you're right; they all they all went in to have a really good career. So this is kind of perfect. Um, since we're on the subject, do you want to talk about uh, how Hollywood changes the perception of family dynamics?
0: Yes, the perfect family right that we can't emulate in real life
1: yeah we, we all want the cosby's but we will settle for married with children as long as it's <laughs> our life resembles married with children
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I, I think more people relate to that in the simpsons than than anything i mean I, I think we're my friends at least when i talk to them they they all relate to the simpsons their own family more
0: what about the brady bunch there's three kids from one the mom three kids from the dad and they just blended together perfectly
1: Right, they all got along.
0: <laughs> I've never seen that. Blended families are battles.
1: Yeah, one of them would have been in prison. Like, like they, one of them they don't talk to. They don't show up. Uh, yeah, one of it would it would be a mess in real life.
0: You know, they never talk about their ex mom or dad either.
1: Yeah, it's because they both murdered them. They, they, there's there's a big backyard, and there's a reason for that. So uh, let's let's talk how Hollywood changes family dynamics. Um, but well, <clears throat> first, let's talk Turkey, um, because you can't really have a family dynamic without having a place to put the family. Uh, and most hardships in families, and most divorces, are entirely centered around money. Mm-hmm. So
0: bankruptcy and divorce are go very well
1: together. Yes. Um, so let's talk about how much these people on TV are making, or at least how much uh, their environment is implying. Because uh, I don't know about you, but when I was watching TV as a kid, I would look at the the apartment and the living situation of the people on TV, and I would compare it to my own. Like my, like my family, the way we interacted, a lot of it was uh, based on our house, like you can only run so far if you have a small house. Like if somebody's annoying you, you can only get like one room away.
0: Or like me, a small apartment.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. you have to you, you, everyone is going on a bike ride if anybody is fighting. Like everybody has to scatter out of the house. Um, so the the amount of misery based on on where you're living, uh, where you're living that 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 comes into play. So first, uh, the first one I found, which is very fun, uh, we're, we're talking um, what we teased earlier. How much are the apartments worth in television shows? And how much are we basing our own metric of success on this? Uh, you've seen the show Friends. Oh, yeah. I think everyone has. I don't think I can act that, ask that question uh, <laughs> um, legally. It's kind of like swearing on a Bible. They, they go to court and they say, have you seen the show Friends now? Now swear on this. Um, Monica's apartment, the the main apartment that they all hang out in, uh, according to uh, this is the uh, Corcoran Real Estate Group. Uh, they estimated that house in Friends or, or the the apartment, if it was rent controlled, would be four thousand five hundred dollars a month. Not rent controlled, meaning just open market, would be seven to eight thousand dollars per month.
0: Holy cow! It's Manhattan prices.
1: It is and NYC. After I looked at this uh, this rating, this scale, I went back and I watched an episode, and I thought, oh my god, that is an... Um, it's a huge apartment. I didn't think about that. Like, the square footage and, like, the multiple bedrooms on one wall and, like, the, the setup of it, it's, it's a massive space for, like, two or three people. <clears throat> In their 20s. <laughs> yes. That's... I'm so glad you said that. Um, because they're all starting their careers they're all yeah. young and when they start the show uh monica is a chef rachel is a waitress and those are the two main breadwinners so like but for an eight thousand
0: dollar house payment you need to be the anesthesiologist radiologist or a dentist
1: yeah you need a technical job an you attorney can't get by. or something <laughs> yeah and when i say chef in the start of the show like later on she ends up being a, an amazing chef, like she ends up owning a restaurant or something like that. But at the start of the show, she is not a a head chef. She's like a line chef. She's a cook. She's a cook, <laughs> and and the other one is a waitress. So they're they're sitting in a very minimum four thousand five hundred dollar apartment on a chef, and that that kind of retooled my expectations. Just hearing that, I, I went back and I thought about as you know, like young Joe sitting on the the carpet watching TV. And I'm thinking, why are we so miserable? Like, why is our house such a dump? Right. It's like, oh, right, because people on TV have amazing apartments. Like, they, they don't even...
0: But in real life, they couldn't afford to pay the utilities or live in this building.
1: Right, exactly. I'm setting my expectations based on somebody else's living accommodations, when in reality, there's no way they could afford it. Like, like of course, you know, my family can't afford a, a good place. Why would I expect them to in Manhattan?
0: And you notice they're never at work. Yeah. <laughs> they're always off all together at the same time. Right. <laughs> How realistic is that? There's not that work hangover. We all have that work fatigue.
1: Right. You never just see an episode where the friends are all just sitting there too tired to talk.
0: Complaining like they, about work.
1: Yeah. That would be a very boring episode.
0: Asking to borrow 50 bucks because get paid on Thursday.
1: Yes. <laughs> Real life. So I've I've got a, a, another one for us. Um, the Simpsons. Uh, I went after this one uh, well, I looked into the research behind it because I wanted to know because because their their house kind of looked kind of dumpy like it, it's cartoon it's drawn in it's goofy it's supposed to look like you know, they make jokes about how cheap their house is sometimes um, I was talking about like a
0: blue collar basic house working working man working woman's house.
1: Exactly, that, that's a really good way to put it, and, and that's really what Homer is, he's, he's a working man, you know, they they, they both work steady jobs, um, so I I found online, somebody had paused the episode right where Homer Simpson has his pay stub out, and so I, I first thought I was going to have to find, you know, everybody, the internet has already done all the work we would ever have to do to find the finances, um, so... Uh, I I expected someone to to estimate how much Homer makes, a a nuclear safety inspector or or plant position like he has. It ended up being something like 75 to 80 K a year, but we don't need that. We don't need to do the math because it turns out the show just tells us Homer Simpson makes 1199 an hour in, in season seven, which comes out to be about $24,000 a year. And with inflation, that's about 37 K a year now um their house is estimated by mavoto real estate to be worth 289k (laughs) so uh so a three hundred thousand dollar house uh when homer simpson is the main breadwinner at 11.99
0: doesn't work i can already tell you yeah can't afford it and then a wife and three kids ain't happening
1: Right, a wife, three kids, and all of the hijinks they go through. Like all, <laughs> all every the broken episode, bones. <laughs> all yeah, that... <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Like like broken bones. Homer's had like three heart surgeries. Yeah. Every episode involves like major property damage or them doing something that just incurs incredible financial costs.
0: And with a son like Bart, you would miss some work.
1: You, yeah, not just miss some work. Bart is basically just property damage walking. <laughs> so it. So the the, the short uh, answer here, like the, what we're trying to get across, is: do not set your um, your expectations for your house or your environment based on television, because you will be disappointed. It's so unrealistic; it's not even fair. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it.
0: These are people who are too pretty, too much time on their hands, and no bills.
1: Yeah, they, they're they're they've got money just under floorboards or something like there's yeah the 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 friends the 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 people from friends they've got like gold doubloons buried or something so uh our next question is okay so the houses are unrealistic what about the family unit itself the whole idea of like the family structure i i don't want to bore everybody um with our with our podcast so i'm going to be real quick about this um, but I went digging. I wanted to know this whole, um, uh, the nuclear family structure, the history of it, uh, where we came up with the idea of that. Um, and it gets very swampy and convoluted very quickly, even for somebody who's used to doing convoluted research. I ran into a lot of things, like articles about religion and Catholic structure and like church structure. Like it, it, a lot of the family structure that we see today a lot of it has a lot of Puritan and religious uh, beliefs uh, or, or practice. Faith, a lot of faith it...
0: background, Christian background.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of it also comes down to um, what's financially feasible, uh, industrial revolution. Like it, it really ties back to everything. Um, but the number one indicator I could find, the the one consistent uh, um, metric for what a nuclear family looks like, is Christmas. So, Todd, I'll I'll phrase this as a question. Uh, When you imagine uh, Christmas with the family, what are your expectations?
0: I I can tell you, it's right in my head. So you have mom and dad sleeping in. Okay. And the kids wake mom and dad up, and they're kind of tired, and they go downstairs. So there's two kids, there's a dog, and mom and dad, and there's all these presents, and food, and excitement, and everyone's in their pajamas, and everybody's happy
1: perfect that that is a perfect picture of a, a nuclear family at Christmas uh, how about um, uh, Christmas evening what does everyone do during Christmas evening there's uh, we're, uh, making gingerbread houses <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is so unlike how I grew up so I'm yeah. laughing right but that's how I see it like a Christmas story you know they're decorating the tree and they're drinking hot chocolate and everybody's all the lovey-dovey it's this big love fest
1: yeah I, I, you, you said it just there. That the the perfect answer is this wasn't my family, but this is what I imagine, and that's uh, same with me, same with you. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be the same. That you had something similar to that. That your family tried to make that image work, but it, 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 but there, there's, um, there's a real history behind this. Why we have that image in our head? Why we copy that? and paste it, kinda of like when I asked you about the the baguette, the, the you know, what does somebody coming back from the grocery store look like? What does Russia look like? What does France look like? What does Christmas and family look like are similar. We've got these stamped in our heads, almost like like they've been photoshopped in to our brains for what does a nuclear family look like? And it, it really just comes back to Christmas. Like, like the research I could find, it, it's just so arrows pointing to it. Um, so we're going to go really quickly through the history of Christmas and why it wasn't a nuclear family holiday until it became branded. And I mean that in a real sense. I mean like really, monetized, right? literally monetized, branded, and, and stamped into our brains. Um, originally, uh, um, Christmas was Saturnalia. It was a, a drunken hedonistic party where peasants and slaves commanded, um, you know, Greece and Rome for a month. Uh, and then during the Middle Ages, it became winter solstice, which, again, was basically a drunken carnival. Kind of like Mardi Gras. <laughs> Spring um, break
0: for poor people.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. No, absolutely. We going
0: to let the peasants and slaves run the city for a while. They used to know how to party back those days, man.
1: Oh, totally. <laughs> hey, people say when I want to... like what would you do if you were a time traveler? I'd go back to one of these celebrations. Like, I, I wouldn't want to go kill Hitler. I would want to just show up during, like, uh, you know, the Middle Ages Mardi Gras, the winter solstice. Can do whatever you want with whoever you want. Right. Yeah, this, the, um, the, the winter solstice was kind of like Saturnalia. Beggars would go around and crown uh, one of their own as the Lord of Misrule, and poor people would go house to house demanding alcohol and food. And if rich people didn't give them food or booze, they'd get beaten or harassed. Uh, <laughs> so when you say it was a, a, a poor man's Mardi Gras, totally. It it really was. You run out of food, you get your ass kicked. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't hand over the hooch or something to eat, <laughs> we are we are beating down your door and we are kicking your ass. Um and then When the uh, Puritans uh, basically were running Boston uh, from 1659 to 1681, Christmas was outlawed. Oh, so they said, "Forget it," because this is yeah, screw it.
0: Our values.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so it's so funny now to think that you know Christmas is very much a Puritan holiday now. That like you know keep Christ in Christmas. Christmas is holy. Christmas is pure. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> the Puritans literally outlawed it, you know, from 1659 to 1681. It was a drunken, poor man's uh, 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 revelry, and then they outlawed it. And that wasn't a thousand years ago. That wasn't that long ago. No, no, that was pretty recent. Uh, um, then came uh, Washington Irving, uh, and he appealed to people's sense of peace and warmheartedness during the holiday. He kind of reimagined Christmas as a whole, and between him and Charles Dickens, they literally rebranded Christmas as a caroling event. Uh, um, actually, Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol, and then the movie basically did the rest. Uh, um, it that that double that that one-two punch between Washington Irving and Charles Dickens, it fully swung it from uh, debauchery, carousing, beat up. Um, you know, poor people beating up rich people for their food and their booze. It completely rebranded it, one hundred percent.
0: To singing and love and
1: yeah, the season. And then the the final blow that turned Christmas into uh, the nuclear family uh, postcard that it is now. Um, and this I got from a great Mental Floss article. I, I really think everyone should look this up. Um, it's a wonderful life. Uh-huh. Have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's the, the old Christmas standard. It I, I really believe this. I think that movie did more to set into concrete the family structure of America than anything else. And then every Christmas movie followed suit. Every Christmas movie after follows It's a Wonderful Life. And got every generation in their yeah. own way. And it, it sort of um, it, it crystallized how we view the nuclear family. Um, funny enough, uh, according to this mental floss article, uh, it's a wonderful life was a complete and total box office dud by rights. We, we should not have really heard of it. it. It wasn't popular. It wasn't particularly good. Um, what ended up happening is, uh, it made 3.7 million back when it was released for theaters. It lost half a million dollars, basically like they, they, the people that made it gave up on it. Um, and they let it slip into public domain. So it was in the red and went all the way down to free movies. Yeah, exactly. Dollar store movies. It skipped the five dollar <laughs> bin and it went straight to free for everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: once something you reaches-
0: can watch this, it sucks, Ben. Yeah, it, it, that's it, shocking because that's such a, a movie that everybody knows.
1: Right. It's it's like what if uh what if a, a free movie on TNT became like the gold standard like yeah. like I was thinking of those cheesy action movies that they used to run all the time but in a trillion dollar industry too. Yeah. So, um it's A Wonderful Life slips into public domain. Uh, all TV stations around the world can now play it for free at Christmas and they do. I mean like like it's it's one of the main christmas movies that just gets played over and over ad nauseum by most stations because it's completely free and because it gets so much exposure like that it becomes the christmas standard it's a it's a wonderful life becomes the movie everyone just thinks of when they think christmas so just kind of a fluke there and and suddenly we get the image of a nuclear family it's it's you know every time you what is it Anytime a bell rings, an angel gets its wing or something like that. <laughs> I, something like that. Something <laughs> I think <like> that, you're <laughs> honest. Butchering the, the quote. But, uh, <laughs> no. So that's, that's where we get the image of the nuclear family. Like a, a huge part of it is branding, basically.
0: So when your family doesn't have that, doesn't have all that love and presence and that space, that perfect house, and, and the cars that don't have car payments, the mortgage that don't have mortgage, it just makes you feel bad. Yeah. That you wish you were in that Cosby family and not your own.
1: Right. We would even settle for the Simpsons. Like <laughs> if if we had a Simpsons Christmas that would have been lovely, but no, not even that. But that's it's all branding and unrealistic basically. It's all make believe. Yeah. So, now that we've talked about how shows can sort of twist our image of of or or set our expectations for family um what are we looking at as far as like love? I mean, we're going to get into into personal relationships. How much our expectations are formed by by television, right? Well, absolutely. And the the first one is being what
0: we're attracted to. So we see people on on TV who are movie stars or they're in their own um, TV shows, and we want we're attracted to those people because of their personalities and their looks. Right. Um, it also shows. Uh, how we twist our expectations of our significant other who we marry. Um, we now want our significant other to be all types of love. We want them to be tall, thin, handsome, beautiful, huge house, perfect behaving kids, and $200,000 a year jobs where you're never at work. Right. Brady Bunch. Yeah, people who make a lot of money are always at work, just so in real life.
1: But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, if the Brady Bunch were realistic, both those parents would have been out of the house all the time. But what's changed
0: recently is people are increasingly seeking self-actualization within their marriages. They're expecting their partners to be all things to them. Now, Joe, what it used to be, when you look for a partner, you're looking for another set of hands, Mm-mm. somebody to, to work with, to get through life with. But now we're looking at our ex our spouses to complete us and make us a better version of ourselves, to be more authentic version of ourselves. Okay, I think that rings true with me. You hear this a lot. He's a wonderful man, a loving father. I like and respect him, but I feel really stagnant in a relationship. I feel like I'm not growing, and I'm not willing to stay in a marriage where I feel stagnant for the next 30 years. But you're hearing these values that most people would say... Are important, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Would you want to trade somebody in that for for a different model or? Um, uh, I have read way too much history, and so my my views are completely skewed on this. I I'm, I usually read about people who like uh, in the Victorian era where you would be married because it was financially stable, it made sense, it it increased your station in life. You you weren't so much partners as much as like business partners. Like it was an arrangement, and if you also loved each other, that was a huge bonus. Um, that was last on the list, right? It, it was love it was will the, come as your family yeah. forces you to marry. Them. <laughs> yeah, you could not expect a partner to be a friend quite so much as somebody who just made your life uh, livable and, and and made things attainable for you. Um, so with you, uh, is that a consideration? I mean, like, do you, do you expect a partner who is, I say it all the time and I've thought it all this time but
0: before we did the research for this. Yeah. I think I need somebody to bring out the best in me. <laughs> okay. So what I'm saying is if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I can blame it on my partner. Oh, right. Okay. You see, and it's easy to put that back on them. And I've heard this a lot with my friends who are going through divorce, um, if the man or woman makes a lot of money, I hear that. They're never giving me any attention. And mm. if it's a stay-at-home person who doesn't have any income, they need to make some effing money. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a, you can't win either way.
1: Yeah. that's I hadn't thought about that, but, yeah, putting your, your self-actualization on your partner – but but that phrase stagnation or or lack of growth having feeling or thinking that with somebody else I mean that's that's so bizarre but you're right they're finding their self esteem in their
0: spouse and if they're not happy with who they are or where their life is or the attention they're getting they feel like it's time for divorce
1: okay so you use the D word there uh, you ready to talk about divorce oh yeah I've I've done it I'm, okay that's real honest. So if we get you started, you may not stop talking about divorce. (laughs) Um, As somebody who's been divorced, uh, do you feel like it's adequately represented on television?
0: It isn't. I think, too, we're talking about Hollywood, what we see couples. Um, Usually we see them as a supportive listening. They don't throw the divorce. They don't throw things at each other. They don't throw the divorce word around. Yeah. They're not those toxic
1: relations. So they... In real life, you're saying that some people use divorce as like a nuclear button. That's the ultimate threat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and you don't hear that. I've never yeah. seen you know a Simpsons episode where they throw it around casually. <laughs> so divorce isn't really represented that well on TV. What about uh, children?
0: The children are always the perfect kids. Um, they usually have some kind of problem and then you watch the parents will guide them through it, right? Right. This is your story, writer, so you know about this.
1: (laughs) The guide. So um, I want to talk, this this is going to lead into me being a bit of a cynic, but um, there are rules for writing children. There there are rules for writing, um, and this is not for me. This is, uh, um, if you go to, um, uh, there's a couple master classes about this from writers. Um, There are also writers' blogs and forums where they talk about this. The way you deal with children in television—if they don't bring in um, interesting conflict to a story, you write them out. And and a couple of examples of this are um, the show Dexter. He had a baby, and it was a huge plot point. Like like it was for a season or two, it was like the the central conflict. And then the baby was being taken care of by a nanny every episode, or, or uh, um, a friend. or it, it allowed him to introduce new characters to the show, because whoever's taking care of the baby would have to be introduced to the audience. But it became more of a plot device than a child. Uh, same thing with uh, friends, Ross's kid. Ross had a kid. I completely forgot about that until we wrote this episode. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, okay. Ross had a son, which is insane, but... Um, yeah, if if a if so a child
0: develop more of the story, yeah, and then introduce characters,
1: it's not <laughs> right. And it's I think novels are sometimes even more guilty of this, where you'll have a kid like uh, Game of Thrones. The youngest kid, Bran, was out of the show for like sev, like four or five seasons. Like he just didn't see him, and then he came back to die in one episode.
0: <laughs> but or... they have to have something going on with them that is a major cause pain.
1: Yeah, they they have to bring conflict to the show. Otherwise, it feels like they're they're hindering the main character. So in my real life, Todd, if you had a kid, I would say they're hindering your character. You're less interesting with a kid, and I'd like you to give it to somebody else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you have to, again, on the financial side, you have to be able to afford a nanny.
1: (laughs) Right. Or afford
0: to ship the kid off for six years with a family member. (laughs)
1: exactly yeah you have to have the money to do that yeah a lot of this stuff this is this kind of upsetting todd but a lot of this hollywood expectation stuff a lot of it comes down to money yeah and a lot of the
0: research that's where we're coming up a lot of problems that's the root of all of it it's not evil it's finances
1: right everything is a a balance hinged on money you can't have hollywood expectations for anything like Hollywood sets us up for these expectations. The only answer for any of them is money. You want a better house. You want uh, the nuclear family structure. You want all this stuff to work. It, it's money. Um. So we're gonna we're gonna move on slightly because we're 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 covering a lot of material here. We're talking all relations and all relation expectations. The way Hollywood sets them up. Have you heard of something called uh, the Bechdel test? No. No. So we're talking about, um, now we're going to transition to um, uh, women being represented in, in television and film. Uh, this came out of a, uh, a cartoon that was uh, made by Alison Beckdale in uh, 1985. And it was out of a comic strip called uh, Dykes to Watch Out For. A- and the test was just sort of like a, a, a snarky, interesting way to, um, to demonstrate that women are not represented well in most media. And the test was, um, do two women have a conversation with each other in a film or show, and it's not about men? Like, it's not about the other male characters. So they're having a, a valid conversation with each other. Oh, and they have to be named. There, there there, are, like, a couple rules to this, but they have to be two female characters with names or female identifying with names. Um, and this, this, there are other podcasts. There's actually one called The Bechdel Test, uh, another podcast about this. Um, but it, it just we're talking like divorce isn't represented children aren't represented women aren't represented half the population is uh it, it's shocking there's um there's lists online for how many movies don't pass this test and there are some on there that are like female oriented or at least marketed to females uh the that don't pass the, Yeah, that don't pass the test to represent women, which is ironic and kind of funny and sad. So, speaking of representation, um, I want to play a game with you. So, we're going we're gonna to talk Disney. Um, because for my money, um, w- growing up, the, the real standard for children's television was Disney. And Disney cartoons specifically. So, from 1937 to 1991, the, um, the, the Hans Christian Andersen run... Where they were basing all of their uh, Disney on that, um, we're going to talk Disney princes. because I, I remember um, Disney princesses are, are huge, huge, huge. Like they make all the money in Disney, and most people I think can name the princesses. Um, there's, there's, well, let's just go through a couple. Uh, how many can you name? Can you can you think of any of the princesses <laughs> that are coming to mind? Yeah, <laughs> give um, us something. Well, it's, it's, I'll give you a hint, the movies are named after them. Sadly, that doesn't help. Okay. <laughs> we won't be treading into, into uh, uh, anti-Todd territory. I finally found Kryptonite. Um, so we've got um, Beauty and the Beast. That's one of the few that isn't named after her. She's Bella. Uh, and then we've got uh, Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Um, I thought I had a princess in the name. Yeah, well, not not so much. No, okay. no, they're just... But they're princesses. Just, they're princesses, yeah. Yes. If they're wearing a dress and they're, they're running... Uh, <laughs> they're in general, frolicking. They're frolicking. <laughs> yeah, most of them are either running away from something or somebody's chasing them or they're running to a prince. Um, the, the reason I wanted to bring this game up is um, a lot of people complain about uh, female representation in film, um, but we start by having uh, young women watch princess movies from Disney, and I didn't think about this until um, somebody on a blog uh, was talking about this. I, I found this in a blog, and they're like, hey, um, if you want to take a, a reverse Bechdel test, name some of the Disney princes.
0: Yeah, they show up for 10 seconds at the end. Yeah, they're That's not. <laughs> they, they kiss and they're gone. They're these handsome, clean-cut guys. But they get about a 10-second little blip.
1: Exactly. Yeah, their their representation is, is they are the Force that the the female character is chasing after, like they're a prize,
0: and they don't even have any speaking uh, lines.
1: Yeah, we know that they are technically royalty because they are a prince. They're dressed nice. They're dressed nice, and we know they have money. They have a white horse. You can right. see it. They're wearing it almost always. They have a white horse. So, so our only real standards for uh, a male representation in in Disney princess movies, which basically raises you know young kids is uh if you want to uh you know if you want to get married you're gonna have to uh be a prince and be born wealthy um so i'm gonna read these off just for fun just just to make me feel slightly worse um (laughs) because i didn't remember any of these the only one i remembered was prince eric who um actually has a speaking role in the little mermaid and you see him multiple times there's prince ferdinand prince charming now, I, I thought that was a nickname, Prince Charming, uh, but that's his actual name. It's a real listed. dude. Real dude, yeah. <laughs> uh, Prince Philip, Prince Eric, and then Prince Adam. I thought Prince Adam's name was Beast. I literally thought Beauty and the Beast that that was the only, like, I I, I, I don't know. Man, why would his mom uh, name him Beast? I was a dumb kid. <laughs> I had problems. Um and then we, we don't really count the the post-1991 princes because that's when they actually started starring in, in the movies. We have Aladdin, um, Prince Naveen, uh, Flynn from... Uh, Flynn and Kristoff uh, from... Uh, oh, wait, wait, Flynn wasn't a prince. I think he was a, a thief. But uh, we also get Christoph and Prince Hans from uh, um, the... Oh, man, I'm, I'm going to get dragged online. Um, the... The one that was based on the ice queen. What was that one? That's Frozen. Like that. Yeah. Frozen. <laughs> so when you find my corpse in a trunk, that's, that's the internet came for me. That's Some what I Eight year olds got you. Eight year olds got me. Yeah. Eight year olds grown women. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we don't really represent, uh, we don't represent in Hollywood, anything that is inconvenient in that moment. We, we put archetypes in place of something that we don't want to think about in that moment. If you don't want a kid getting in the way of your main character doing things, put the kid in daycare or, or give them to some other character to take care of. If you don't want to think about how women are thinking or feeling in any given movie, just have the two women talk about a dude. Don't represent them. Uh, if you need a male character who is going to be a, an attraction for the female princess... Don't give him a, a meaningful name. Uh, just make sure he's wealthy and he has a position. Very generic towards the end. Right. So let, we let her really do overcome all the obstacles on her own. She yeah, doesn't, she doesn't need a man's help, or, or she sleeps through the obstacle, obstacles in Sleeping Beauty. So I kind of want to get into this uh, just a little bit. Um, we we talked about the the Louisville Purge, and that it we, we kind of laugh like like. The reason we started with that as a narrative instead of something more grim or serious or instead of covering the Truman Show is it would have been uh, – it, it's it's more amusing to look at something like The Purge and say, what a bunch of goofballs. Why would a city fall for a prank like that? I'm not that – it wouldn't happen to me. Right. Of course. It can't happen to me. I'm, I'm too realistic for that. So in your opinion, Todd, what have you fallen for? Like what, what are – what are some ways you've separated your perceptions from TV and how have you tried to get out of that trap? Um, I, I think the, the big thing being my
0: expectations for um, a partner that I really wanted monetary. I wanted to have everything. And I think what I learned from TV Hollywood is that to be loved, you have to be the best. You have to be the best looking. You have to always win the game. Oh. You always have to get the girl. You always have to get the promotion. To a help, to, to, So I was never really happy with what I had. I couldn't enjoy this point I was at in the relationship I was at. I always thought I wanted to do better or I wanted to get a better job. So it just taught me some, the separation was being grateful for what I have
1: right now. Okay, so you were, you were looking for love. And to attain that, you thought you needed to get Hollywood levels of success. You needed to... The stuff and the attention... Uh, you know, sex stuff. And <laughs> okay, attention. You needed the, uh, the the Karate Kid ending, where you walk out and you have a trophy in one arm and the girl in the other, and That's you're like, amazing at something.
0: <laughs> those '80s movies, yeah, where you get the girl, you lose a lot, but at the end you win the game, you get the girl, and you're at a
1: dance. So yeah, right. Yeah. So <laughs> what about you? How do you separate the? Uh, I've. My, my greatest wish in life is to, to just write good fiction and, and to write entertaining and, and, and be able to capture people's attention. Um, but to do that, I had. You, you first start by learning classics and tropes and archetypes, and you start by learning how good stories are strung together. So I trained my brain to expect everything story, everything Hollywood, everything novel, uh, or novel is in books um so I, I i literally trained myself to expect all the wrong things like I, I i trained myself to expect hollywood everything
0: so so when you know all the tricks you still believe that it could happen in real
1: life oh it's so much worse if you know all the tricks you you want those things to happen you you frame it in your own mind so you, think
0: you, you can create if you create it on paper you create it in real life too it,
1: yes precisely And when it doesn't match up, it just leads to disappointment after disappointment. Well, there's an old motivational thing about that. Like, we're the leading actors and
0: actresses. The problem is the rest of the world doesn't have the script. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're playing their own script. They're not running yours.
1: Right. Unfortunately, nobody else is on board with your Truman Show. Like, nobody else is carrying a boom mic behind me. It's, It's just me narrating my own head.
0: As Americans, we've had a love affair with Hollywood's version of reality for generations, easily since the first official Hollywood film was finished in 1908, The Count of Monte Cristo. Since then, we've been borrowing our expectations and perceptions from TV, movies, and commercials and integrating them into our lives. We take brand advice and political beliefs from commercials based on our mere exposure. We associate landmarks and cities with locations we've seen on TV, almost like we've copied and pasted movies into our picture of reality. Our expectations for income, our homes, our apartments, and to a limited degree, our family structure are cribbed from Hollywood. Even our expectation from our spouses, our loved ones, can be framed by Hollywood from a very young age. In short, we've all been given a template of what to expect by movie and TV producers. So if someone screams, the purge is on, why wouldn't we believe it, even if it's just for a day? You've been listening to The Re-Engineered You, Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week.
1: You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com, where we have research links, show notes, and blog articles for each of our episode. We appreciate speed, feedback, spirited debates, and purging advice, if you have it. <laughs> We're purging all other podcasts. That's right. We're not experts in anything but we've got an opinion on everything. And speaking of opinions, I have a review here. If you want me to read it, Todd. Please, iTunes review. Five star. This is from Jojo Podcast Enthusiast. He says, Blown away. This was a well-crafted and produced podcast. Thought-provoking and interesting topics which kept me engaged the whole time. I can't wait to listen to the next episode. More of these, please.
0: Thank you. We appreciate your kind words.
1: It means the world to us. And if you want to leave us a review, we will read it. uh, Eventually. (laughs) We have a list.